millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I respectfully request Congress to reinstate the death penalty for heinous crimes related to drugs as well as plunder. death penalty has been an on-again, off-again policy in the Philippines, depending on who sits in Malacanang and the political climate of the time. The president could always ask Congress to bring it back. And that's exactly what President Rodrigo Duterte has done. From the very start of his campaign, he expressed support for the return of capital punishment. Now that he has allies, a supermajority in both chambers of Congress, it seems as though the country stands to see the death penalties return. Ako po si Robbie Alampay. At ako po si Ted Te, former Supreme Court spokesperson and now back teaching law at the UP, the Ateneo, and the De La Salle College of Law. And this is Te Talks, where Ted Te talks on all things law and government. In this episode, we talk about the death penalty. Ted, let's start off with, well, let's start off with you because you have been personally invested in this entire debate. I remember I was a young reporter when I first heard of your name in a very, very public context. I don't know if this is the accurate way of putting it, but you were the lawyer for Leo Echegaray and he was the first Filipino in a long time to to actually be executed upon the return of capital punishment. Just bring us back to that time. Yes, I was the lawyer for Leo Echegaray, the first person to be executed in the country since the death penalty was restored in 1994. The death penalty had been part of our laws since the revised penal code took effect in 1932 and then was abolished briefly in 1987 when the 87 constitution took effect in February, except for two exceptions stated in the Constitution itself, that when Congress determines there is a need for the death penalty for heinous crimes and for compelling reasons. Because the procedure was, uh, if a death penalty is imposed by the trial courts, it automatically goes to the Supreme Court for review. When the Supreme Court uh, decides that the death penalty is to be sustained, then that's the time it goes back to the trial court. The trial court then issues an order, basically what we call a death warrant, and that's when the person's date of execution is set by the trial court. 1987, abolished. 1994, it returns. Returned. And then 1997, the first convictions. The first conviction. Capital punishment started being implemented in 1995, the year after the law was passed in 1994. This was already under... This was under President Fidel Ramos. And then when the law took effect, the first to be convicted was not Leo Echegaray. First to be convicted in 1997 was a person by the name of Pedro Malabago for parricide. His sentence was 
sustained conviction, but the death penalty was not sustained. But Leo Echegaray's sentence was the first to be affirmed by the Supreme Court. That's why he became the first, well, dead man walking, as it were. That was Leo Ichigaray. He recorded that message for his wife before he was executed. He was charged with rape, rape of a minor at the time, supposedly the daughter of his common law partner. It polarized you know, many people, the pro-death penalty camp and then the anti-death penalty camps and you know, a lot of people in between. Today's execution is proof of the government's determination to maintain law and order. Let Mr. Chagaray's death serve as a strong warning against the criminal elements. In my administration, we will prove that crime does not pay. This is former President Joseph Estrada speaking. I would like to stress that the crime committed by Mr. Chagaray is not poverty-related, but an act of bestiality, which serves the steepest penalty under the law. What were the arguments for and against the return of the death penalty in the 1990s? During the debate in Congress, there were basically two cases that were brought up repeatedly. The case of Cochise Bernabe and Bibom Castaños, and then the death of Eileen Sarmenta in UP Los Baños, which involved killing as well as rape. And so the, the main argument for the death penalty then was, well, it is punishment and then it was a deterrent of course the the arguments for those opposed to it was that a deterrence is not conclusive it is not even considered anymore in many arguments for the death penalty and then of course the moral side of the argument which says that you should not take revenge and then the third one argument that was raised there is that the constitution basically requires that there must be compelling reasons involving heinous crimes. How do you define heinous crimes? The, the problem is that the Constitution does not define it. It leaves to Congress the definition of heinous. And in the death penalty law that was passed in 1994, the Congress did not bother to define heinous. It just simply said there are heinous crimes and therefore we need to reimpose the death penalty. So when President Duterte today says, I want capital punishment returned specifically for drugs and specifically for plunder. Does that move us along further in defining what heinous means? Congress must define what it means when it says that the, death, the drug offenses are heinous and that plunder is heinous. So, for example, in, in, let's not take, talk drugs. Let's mm. talk in the context of plunder. Okay. Uh, we already have a threshold for plunder. Yes. Diba? So, yes, it's 50 beyond million. 50 million pesos. Yes. That's, that's plunder. Yes. You, you steal 49 million. That's not plunder. That's not plunder. Uh, so, so, you're saying 
something along those lines that could either quantify or at least narrow down the definition? No, for example, if if they were to say plunder will now be be subjected to the death penalty, it cannot be the plunder that is defined now. For example, they say if the person commits plunder and the threshold amount is a hundred million, you change something. Then you change something. Then you can say that particular act is heinous. We must remember that in 2006, Congress had passed a law prohibiting the death penalty from being imposed for these very same offenses. So if nothing changes in the definition of these offenses, meaning no new element has been added to plunder or to to the drug offenses under the existing law, then it becomes very difficult to define it as heinous. By tradition, executions are carried out at 3 p.m. Yes. Why 3 o'clock? I actually asked that under the RA 8177, implementing the death penalty law. Our rules prescribe that starting at 3, not earlier than 3, but before sundown of the day itself. Uh, so, so it doesn't have to be 3 It doesn't have to be 3. Now, I did ask that of the guard, one of the guards who was an old-timer who had witnessed even an electrocution. No? I, I asked him, uh, Manong, bakit alas stress? Sabi na, hindi ko rin po alam. Sabi niya, baka dahil kay Heso Kristo, kasi namatay si Heso Kristo alas stress. So, maybe it's a throwback. In other jurisdictions that I'm aware of, in the US, for example, I think it varies from state to state. Some states execute at midnight or at dawn, right? So, it, it may not be a uniform practice, but in the Philippines, maybe because of the, you know, history of Catholicism, of Christianity, it may be because of that. Now, between 3 o'clock, as soon as the clock strikes 3, and until sundown, which is defined as what, 6 p.m.? Maybe 6 p.m., yes. Okay. Now, between 3 and 6, who has the power to to stop or stay an execution? Only the president. Only the, the president. Only the president. And inside the room, inside the chamber, there's a there's a phone. In the limited experience that we've had, as well as drawing from the experience of of other countries, where is the evidence uh, right now? Well, as far as the other countries are concerned, uh, there is a trend towards removing the death penalty. Uh, as of 2018, uh, there are 106 countries worldwide that have ab- abolished the death penalty in their jurisdictions for all offenses. There are, eight, uh, there are seven that have abolished for ordinary crimes only. And then there are 29 that are what we call abolitionist de facto, meaning they don't have a law, but they are committed to not imposing the death penalty or carrying it out. So that's 142. Of the current uh, countries left with the death penalty, I think there are only 56. So a majority, about 75% of countries worldwide, have abolished the death penalty, whether by statute or by practice. And they've abolished it on the grounds of... Of what? For various that, reasons, for many for many countries, they have abolished it based on the the a human rights perspective that it violates the violates dignity, it violates the prohibition against cruel, degrading, inhuman punishment. It uh, violates fundamental rights of of people. Some countries have abolished it because they feel that it is an it is an unequal penalty. It discriminates against the poor. So there are various various arguments towards abolition. One of the ironic things with President Duterte uh, enjoining 
uh, and encouraging Congress to uh, bring back capital punishment is the Speaker of the House, uh, Alan Peter Cayetano, is actually on record having said it repeatedly that the real deterrence to crime is the certainty of punishment, not the severity of punishment. Is there evidence either way uh, to support or debunk that argument? There is no statistical data that will show that that particular statement can be proven is to have a system that would really allow a, a person who is suspected of a crime a particularly heinous crime, for example, to be identified, to be charged, to be tried, convicted, sentenced, and then, you know, basically allowed to serve his sentence and to show that, you know, you don't really need the death penalty for so long as you have this kind of system. During the the time when the death penalty was there, uh, you know, there were anti-crime uh, groups that were lobbying, of course, in support of the death penalty. And one of the people that I had spoken to, you know, who was leading one of those anti-crime groups, you know, she herself, you know, if only the police were more efficient, if only the courts were more efficient, I really would not need to lobby for the death penalty. So even for those who were victimized, for example, by crime, who are lobbying for the death penalty, for them, it's really a matter of not being able to get the justice they feel they need. So that's where the certainty of punishment being a deterrence comes in as an argument, that if you had that, you don't need to look anywhere else. When you say that, you know, the majority, if not almost all the people on death row are poor, never got access to decent legal representation, that's easy to, to say and to paint because the picture is right there. Are there hard figures to, to illustrate that it's the powerful who never get caught? The study that we ran uh, is, well, the numbers are outdated. This was, this was run in the 90s. But the survey that we ran uh, of people who were on death row, and at the time I think there were maybe three dormitories already, starting from a single cell. I think an overwhelming majority of those who answered the survey did not have a house that they owned, were not renting, did not have appliances that we know of, because that was the survey that we asked. We didn't ask money, how much they were earning. We asked what they had, what, uh, what they owned. You know? And so that was the basis for that survey, to show the socioeconomic profile of people on death row. It was dug up by one of the justices in another case that we did not file, uh, People versus Mateo. And that justice used that particular survey to illustrate one that the socioeconomic profile of the people on death row was you know was overwhelmingly against those who were poor. Second, that there was a huge error rate in how the courts handled death penalty. In one rare instance where the Supreme Court itself reversed their decision. But when the case was brought to us, we were told that the, the court had overlooked one very crucial fact, that the person was deaf-mute. And we wondered why, because when we looked at the records, the person actually spoke. And so we did the, you know, the actual checking. We went to the death row. He was there. And we talked to him. He could not talk. He had no, no means of communication, did not know sign language, as it were. In fact, the interpreter 
at the time was Leo Echegaray. He was still alive at the time. And he was interpreting for us what this guy wanted to do. And so we were convinced that yes, he's deaf mute. But of course, we were laypersons. We were not doctors. We asked the Supreme Court, can we have him examined? And I imagine Leo Echegaray is not a forensically accredited uh, interpreter. Certainly not. Leo Echegaray was trying to figure out also what this guy wanted. But, you know, through the rudimentary gestures that he could muster, they probably figured out, okay, this is what he wanted. But nothing complicated, you know. Uh, come and eat. Cook something, go there, go here. So all of those things. So maligo we ka na. yes, maligo kana or takbuka punta ka dito. So we we brought the case to the Supreme Court again, asked the court to to have him examined by experts. And after some time, the court agreed when the court's own doctor examined him and said, "Well, I'm not an expert, but I think he is deaf mute. But I think he should be examined by experts." We had him brought to the PGH, to the College of Medicine of UP. They examined him, and they did conclude he was deaf-mute. He had the mental age of nine years old, and therefore could not have spoken. And therefore could and not have gotten a fair trial. Could not have gotten a fair trial, could not understand the charge, could not understand and communicate with his lawyer, and therefore the sentence that was imposed on him could not be fair. Ted, with that as backdrop, where do we stand right now? President Duterte has endorsed it. How does capital punishment come back or how is it defeated? It depends. There are, there are several venues for challenge here. First, in Congress. Uh, of course, the law, the bills will have to be heard. And so public hearings will be conducted by the committees. And then assuming the law passed, the bills are passed, the law is signed. Two options there. First, question the bill, question the law as soon as it is passed and as soon as it takes effect without even a single person having been convicted. Or wait until someone is actually convicted, sentenced, and then raise it to the Supreme Court. As far as lawyers go, the usual route would be to wait. Well, that's what we did in 1997. We waited for someone to actually be convicted, raise it up before the Supreme Court so that there are no questions on standing, there is no question on prematurity. So it might have to wait a little bit if it is in the courts. If the, if the lobbies in Congress fail and the law is passed, then the judicial option is the last option. Muli, ako po si Robbie Alampay. At ako naman si Tete. Huwag po kalimutan mag-subscribe sa T-Talks sa Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. Follow Puma Podcast din po on all those same platforms. This episode was produced by Katrina Ventura, edited by Nico Bolante. Maraming salamat po. Music